Well, each and every single one of us um, here this afternoon is a worshipper. Actually, all of us are worshippers, whether we're, we call ourselves Christians or not, religious or not, we, we all worship. The big question is, what or whom is it that we worship? We're all worshippers, but what or whom is it that we, that we worship? There's a guy called um, David Foster Wallace. I think a picture of him maybe might come up. If not, imagine what he looks like. David Foster Wallace, and he's an author, and uh, he's not a, not a Christian guy, but he, um, he was giving a commencement speech at a university in the States, and uh, you can probably imagine these kind of speeches, you know, graduating students, and you imagine you can do anything, you can achieve anything, there's no hurdle that's too high, the sky's the limit, you can do it, that's the kind of speech you can imagine. Not for this guy. His speech was very different. This is what he said. Remember, he's not a Christian. He said, all of you worship. We're all worshippers. Some of you will worship money and stuff. Thing is, though, you'll, you'll never have enough, or, or you'll never feel that you have enough. Others of you will worship your body. You'll worship beauty. But you'll always feel ugly. And when ageing starts, as, as it will in a few years, you'll die a million deaths before you go to the grave. I said, told you it was a different commencement speech than, than the usual ones. He carried on. Some of you will worship power. You'll be obsessed with power, but you'll always feel weak and afraid. And you'll always feel that you need more power over other people to sort of numb yourself uh, in that way. Others, he said, will worship your intellect, your, your smartness, your brain. But you'll end up always feeling a little bit stupid, like a fraud, always on the, the verge of being found out. Everyone worships something. Everyone bases their life upon something. And this is how he finished it. It's powerful. He said, worship these things and they'll eat you alive. They'll eat you alive. And very sadly, this guy, David Foster, was just a couple of years after the speech, committed suicide. He took his own life very, very tragically. We're all worshippers. Do we worship the God of the Bible, who we've been singing about, who we've been hearing about? Or will it be other small g gods? Well, actually, the theme of worship, it flows all the way through um, the Bible. It's a big theme, this theme of worship, because actually you and I were made for worship. Right at the beginning of the Bible, in the, the Garden of Eden, right at the, the beginning, that was the place where, where God, the Creator, dwelt with his people, dwelt with Adam and Eve. And they were made to worship him, to enjoy God forever. Eden was a was a place that was that was made for this. And you might have heard in a minute ago when Rachel was reading out the mention of the temple. And actually some people have said that, that Eden was a kind of temple, kind of proto-temple, if you, if you like a fancy word for it, where God dwelt in that place with his people. Yeah, page three of the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible storyline, sin entering into the world ruined that. And it made this worship or access of God, it, well, it restricted that. Yet yeah, God in his kindness orchestrated some buildings in the Old Testament, the building of the tabernacle, and later the building of the temple, as places where he could dwell with his people so that his people could worship him. 
and so that they could offer sacrifices and, and receive forgiveness. So that's kind of a bit of a big picture of what's going on in the Old Testament. The problem is around 50 years before this book of Ezra that we're looking at today, in the year 587 BC, the previous generation had seen the temple, that this worship lifeline, they had seen it obliterated by the Babylonians, bulldozed down, and the glory of God had departed from his people. And they had gone into exile because of their sin and disobedience. But the Babylonians had been overthrown over time, and the Persians, they had come as the new superpower. And that's where we find ourselves in this book um, of Ezra and Nehemiah that goes with it as well. Are you with me so far, just about kind of up to speed of what's happening? Well, if not, um, we might have an exercise. Fantastic. There we go. This is kind of where we're up to if you're visiting. Even if you're not visiting, it's quite helpful sometimes to remember, isn't it? Chapters 1 and 2, at the beginning of this book, we're told that God had moved Cyrus, the king of Persia's heart. He was sort of king of this world superpower. And, and Cyrus, this pagan king, had issued a decree to the people of God, saying that they could go home, they could rebuild the temple so that they could worship again. Chapter 3, Jeshua, so rubber bell, that's a good name, isn't it? We heard that in the reading a minute ago. Uh, they built the, the altar so that sacrifices could be given and so that worship could take place. But last week, if you were here in chapter 4, we saw that there was fierce opposition to God's people and the work of the building, rebuilding of this temple. And so the building project came to a standstill, to a grinding halt. Just if you've got your Bibles there open on page 476. Look at the very last verse of chapter 4, where we're told that thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. Came to a standstill. And so if God's people want to worship him, do you remember that's what we're made for, worship of God? If the temple's not been rebuilt, it's not been fixed, that's a serious problem, isn't it? The people of God here, as we find them at the end of chapter 4, are crushed, they're opposed, they're weary, and they are in need of God to be at work amongst them so that they could rebuild and finish the temple so that their very hearts could, could do the thing that they were created for, worship. Worship of the true and living God. Some of you might be hearing this and thinking, what on earth has this got to do with me? Any of this stuff, building, old funny names, what on earth is going on? Where are we up to? It's worth saying that today we don't have a physical building like they did. The temple is no more. But today, all around the world, we have the church. I don't mean so much the, the bricks and mortar of the building of the church, but the people, you. You guys are people belonging to God. And so our task under God today is to rebuild, to reform the church so that Jesus Christ might be worshipped all around the world today joyfully. And so actually this book of Ezra, yes, it's in the Old Testament. Yes, it might seem a bit difficult to apply to our life. Well, actually, no, it's desperately relevant that we listen to these lessons so that we can be a part of God's work today, so that we might worship him and so that others might as well. It's a great task. And so as we approach these chapters, I want us to sort of pretend we're getting the hard hats on. Okay, we're on the building site. And we need to know some things about God's building project today, the church. Three things that I want us to see uh, from these chapters. First of all, then the church built on the words of God. 
the church built on the word of God, or more precisely, the proclamation of the word of God. So after this uh, opposition that we saw at the end of chapter four, it's been 15 long years since the work ground to a hall. It's a long time, right? I mean, some of you might have had building projects where builders take a long Christmas break, but I mean, this is 15 years. There hasn't been any building. Yet chapter five, there's a positive start. Have a look at verses one and two. Now, Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. It's a positive start after that 15 years of no building. And here we're told Haggai, Zechariah, two authentic Old Testament prophets who've got their own books that you can read another time. We're told here that they prophesied in verse 1. Prophesied, the same term that's used in chapter 6, verse 14, for preaching. What is it they're doing? Well, they're preaching the word of God. And it came like a shot of adrenaline to God's people that inspired them to start rebuilding. Look at the response you see is Zerubbabel, Joshua. They pick up their tools and they get to work to rebuild the temple. Because the word of God, it energized them. It stirred them into action. It's, it's one of the things that the word of God does. It enables and inspires God's servants, people like us, to do his work. It reminds us that if God is to be worshipped rightly, the foundation for, for us, God's people, the church, needs to be the, the proclaimed living and active word of God, the Bible. It's got to be foundational to the building up of the local church. Should be a picture coming up of um, a new build. I don't know if you, I was really surprised, you know, lockdown happened. It seemed like new buildings still were going up all around London. It's always sort of expensive high rise. And here's, um, some friends of ours haven't moved in here, but they've moved in somewhere nearby. This is Battersea, Nine Elms. Uh, this is a building called One Nine Elms. And don't ask why, but I was watching a, a video uh, with one of the architects talking through uh, the project. And it's a 56-story tower, hotel, and flats. And get this, to build the foundations of this, to drill down, they need to go 63 metres down, okay? 63 metres. And this guy was saying it's a nightmare. There's an old Victorian sewer system. You, you want to avoid that as you drill down. Um, there's a scour feature from the ice age. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounds impressive. And, um, and so they, they needed to go deep, deep, deep down for this 56-story building to go up. And I'm no architect or uh, quite clearly, as you can hear me trying to explain these things, but the foundations for that building, you, you want to get that right, don't you? That is incredibly important that you get that right. And so it is with the church. See, the word of God, the Bible proclaims, needs to be the foundation of the church of God. It's essential for the, for the rebuilding, for the reforming of the church. That is particularly the preaching, the proclamation of the word of God. And uh, some of you might be hearing this, you've been at Trinity maybe for a while, and you think, yeah, we, we know this. We, we, of, course, of course that's true. But actually, sadly, there are many churches up and down the country, many churches uh, in this land, where that foundation isn't taken for granted or, or isn't there. I was hearing just the other day of um, 
someone on holiday, I was just in Cornwall, they were on holiday, <clears throat> and they thought, I'll go along on holiday to a local church, just kind of a church nearby, I encourage them to see what's happening. And uh, the, the preacher stood up, and he said, you're going to have to accept my apology. I haven't, I haven't got a sermon this week. Uh, I haven't got a sermon, but I've been at the county, I've been at the county show uh, most of the week. And I'm gonna I'm gonna share some stories from the show. Really? I mean they might have been good stories, but come on. Many churches, it's just a, a radio for thought for the day, a five-minute sort of reflection. And actually, many Church of England churches, Methodist churches, other denominations as well, are experiencing decline because the proclaimed word of God has just been sidelined. Someone said that the Church of England, a, a journalist said that actually the Church of England during, during lockdown and during COVID times has failed its COVID test. It's failed to proclaim a message of hope. And that's a, a secular journalist saying that. It's a proclamation of the word of God. It needs to be central. It, it gets the work going as we see here and it sustains things. And when the word of God is, is preached, when we, we're exposed to that, things happen. So I want to encourage us to, to hold our nerve that this is the way that, that God builds his church so that people might worship him. You'll get people every now and then saying, well, preaching or kind of the proclaim word of God, it, it doesn't really work anymore in a postmodern generation or a Netflix generation where people just watch stuff on screen. Preaching, it, we need to sort of do dialogue or other things. And maybe there's lessons we can learn maybe from that. And maybe later in the sermon you'll be thinking, yeah, Nathan, just make it a shorter sermon. But, but we need to learn, actually, from this passage that, no, the proclaimed word of God is how God builds his church. It's his method then for his people. It's his method now. Moving on to the next uh, section here. After this positive start, verse 3. I don't know if you noticed from Rachel and Mary read it out. It sounds quite ominous, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. We're told at that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, I think that's what we're going for, Rachel. Shethar, Bozanai, and their associates went to them and asked, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and to, to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? And if you remember maybe last week, and chapter 4, that there was that severe opposition that made them down tools for 15 years. This sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? So it sounds pretty similar. Well, it's not quite the same. See, the officials here, Tatanai Tat and Shethar Bozanai, sounds like someone that Chelsea are in the transfer market for or something like that. Um, they're much more neutral than those that came in chapter four. These guys are more sort of sticklers for the rules rather than being malicious. They're the kind of officials that say, look, nothing personal, I'm just doing my job. Yet it's still intimidating, isn't it? They, they say, who authorised this rebuilding project? Who are the names of those involved? Some of you might have been here for the family fun day that we had last Sunday. It was brilliant, it was a really good time. And apparently a few years ago when one of these fun days took place, the police turned up. It was all okay, don't worry. But the police turned up. It's the kind of thing you can imagine. They came, who authorised it? Where's the paperwork? Who's in charge here? It's a bit scary, isn't it? The heart gets going. It's all okay. Everything was fine. And you went to the police, sorry, just do my job, just checking it's all okay. And that's what's going on here. It's not aggressive, but it's kind of red tape, officialdom, that can get into the way of the work. Yet, 
There are glimpses here of the protective, sovereign hand of God over this building. Have a look at the end of verse 1 again. Sorry, we will get through the rest of these chapters. But the end of verse 1, we're told that it was God's. He was over them. Or verse 5, have a look at that. But the eye of their God was watching over them. And so even all this red tape officialdom going on, they were still able to continue the work. Nonetheless, a letter goes to King Darius, we're told. Um, Cyrus was the previous king before him. Uh, he's gone and Darius is the new king in town. Uh, and it's worth noting just in this letter that goes from Tatanai and his friends to Darius, it's worth noting how the people of God acknowledge their status in verse 11. They say that they're the servants of, of God. That's, that's encouraging. Verse 12, they acknowledge their sin as well, the sin of previous generations. Yet verse 17, the main thrust of the letter comes. It says this, Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. And what comes next shows off that the sovereign overruling hand of our God, God orchestrating circumstances on behalf of his people. So if you're very sharp-eyed, you, you would have seen this. Someone pointed it out to me uh, in one of the books I read this week. But in verse 17, that the location of the scroll to find this, the original planning permission, they told them in verse 17 to look in Babylon. Yet in chapter 6, verse 2, we're told that it was in Ekbatana, a completely different place, where the scroll was found, God sovereignly overruling, so that it was found. But, but more than that, the content of the scroll, he was overruling as well. Some more details are, are added. So in verse six of chapter six onwards, it's Darius speaking, and he confirms what had happened in chapter one, but yet he extends generosity towards God's people. Remember, this is a pagan king, yet he's extending this generosity. Three little things he says, verse 6 and 7, he says to Tatanai and his friends, stay away from God's people. Let them get on with their work. No more clipboards or, or health and safety or risk assessments. Let them crack on with the work. More than that, second little thing in 8 and 9, this pagan king says, pay the expenses for God's people. The, the money's coming here from the royal coffers, state money, to, for the rebuilding of this temple. Or the third thing as well, in verse 12, they're given state security as well. If anyone causes any problems, stop them. Amazing providence, God providing for his people, overruling things. We might just read this and think, isn't this all a bit sort of random or a bit lucky, chance? Well, remember verse 5, the eye of their God was watching over them. God behind the scenes, showing extravagant providence, care for his people. And so verse 15, we see that as they carry on chiseling and chopping and get the spirit level out on the, the building of the temple and all of those kind of things, the work is complete. The temple is rebuilt. It's a big day. And it's not because of Tatanai. It's not even because of Darius. It's because of the Lord with his people. What's this mean? Well, chapter four last week, do you remember John already said it, that 
the big message last week was don't be surprised when God's people, whose building work, is opposed, where there's opposition. Yeah, these chapters say don't be surprised when support for the Lord's work comes from really strange and unusual places, like a, like a pagan king. So we need to know that that's the way that God builds his church today. So, so for example, chapter four last week, uh, we might get a, a Christian union, maybe at a university. We've perhaps heard stories of, of them being kicked out of a, a lecture room on campus because of maybe their Christian beliefs. And uh, don't be surprised, chapter four would say, when that kind of thing happens. Yet also, I think of a time when I was at university and I was sort of helping to lead the Christian Union. And we wanted to put on an event. We wanted to put on a wine tasting, slightly middle class, but it was going to work for this kind of context. We were going to put on a wine tasting. And I went to the, the head of the student union, um, a, quite a strong atheist guy, and I said to him, look, can we... Um, can we put on this Christian event? It's going to be a talk there. Can we book a, a room on the campus? And he said, absolutely, Nathan. Here, here's the best room on campus. And for the event, just send me the invoice for the wine and the speaker and those kind of things. And we're paying all. That's absolutely fine. Okay. I didn't expect that one coming at all. So don't be surprised when there's a blessing from an unusual place. Or I think of Christian assemblies sometimes at school. I know a friend of mine was going into a school to give Christian assemblies. And, and one assembly, they said, was what well, talked about sin a bit too much. And it wasn't really what the school wanted. So they said, this guy's not allowed to come in anymore. Last week, chapter four, don't be surprised, okay, when that happens. Yet also, my wife, Charlotte, who's a teacher, don't be surprised when at her school, the head of religious assemblies comes up to her and says, Oh, look, I've got this job. I don't really know what I'm doing. You're a Christian, aren't you? Can you just sort out all of the Christian assemblies in this year? Get your husband in, get other people in to do them. Um, it, it, it's all yours. Do whatever you want. And so you can go in and there's 300 girls there at Easter Assembly listening to the gospel. Don't be surprised when that happens. Last example, just in a workplace. Sometimes people I know at Trinity are in workplaces where the diversity policies are can sometimes seem to oppose Christian values and it can seem quite in your face. But, but yeah, don't be surprised when that happens, but also when it works for our kids where publicity and money and rooms are given in the name of diversity so that Christians can put on events as well. Don't be naive to opposition and hardship. But the message is this week is don't be so cynical that you don't see God's hand at work to build his church, even through really surprising people and sources. Because after all, as, as Ephesians 3 would say, our, our God is able to do, well, immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's what your God is like. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it, in a country where maybe there's not a lot of Christian politicians, but to pray for our leaders. Leaders maybe like Darius here in our passage, where they're making decisions that God can overrule. He can use those kind of people, even for the building of his church in some kind of strange, mysterious way. Well, we've seen the role of the word of God. We've seen the providence of God in enabling the temple to be completed. But, but what is what's it all for? Is it just a pretty building? The temple is all done nice? Well, it's got to be more than that, hasn't it? The temple is, is finished, it's completed. Why? So that God can be worshipped. 
It's a climax. See, the climax isn't so much the temple being finished. It's, it's the joyful worship of the living God can take place for his people. Did you see in chapter 6, verse 16, of that celebration of joy? We're told there then the people of Israel, the priests, Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. With joy. And you can understand that joy a little bit, can't you? That joy, do you remember they had seen in a previous generation that the temple destroyed, God's glory departed, they had been exiles in, in a foreign land, they had faced brutal opposition for 15 years, not being able to build. And now here they are, back in Jerusalem, they've seen the powerful word of God, they've seen the powerful hand of the sovereign God. Now the temple is finished and they can worship him. They can offer sacrifices, and he has restored their joy. Three little things just to say, that how the, the joy is fueled, verse 17. Sacrifices, sin offerings are made for, for the forgiveness of the people, and, and so they rejoice. Second little thing, the, the Passover, did you see, is celebrated. So just as a reminder, that the Passover in the book of Exodus is where the people celebrated and rejoiced in God rescuing them from the land of, of Egypt. And it's almost here like a second rescue, a second exodus. They were in exile. Now they're back in the land, and so they worship and rejoice. And then verse 21, you might have missed it. But verse 21 was showing that other nations, other people are drawn into this worship. Have a look at verse 21. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, that's the Passover, together with all they had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a great openness about God's people. It's not some exclusive nationalism, Jews only, but it was always spent, supposed to be magnetic so that other nations could be drawn into this joyful worship. And the last verse, verse 22, well, it all culminates in a noisy joy, doesn't it? Seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Syria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. God had made his people overflow with joyful worship as he dwelt with them again. And so as Christians today, will we remember not so much the temple, but we remember Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the temple. We saw that a few weeks ago with Jeremy preaching. He, he took us to John 1 and that passage where we're told that Jesus, as he came, he, he tabernacled among us, it says. All the glory of God's presence dwelling among his people here on earth. And more than that, we remember the cross, the, the great meeting place between God and humanity as Jesus' sacrifice dealt with our sin once for all, so that we can dwell with him and worship him with joy forever. Nothing fuels our joy like remembering and having a deeper understanding of, of the cross. It's something that Joseph Haydn understood. He's a, um, a classical composer. I'm sure all of you are very familiar with his trumpet concerto, for example. He wrote, um, but Joseph Haydn, he also wrote a lot of music for, for the church setting. And he, he quite often wrote quite exuberant music 
uh, for church that he was criticized for by some of the more somber members of the of the church all churches have a few somber members like that don't they um, but once uh, he said this he said since god has given me a cheerful heart i will forgive he will forgive me for serving him cheerfully and so one time he was asked to um put music to the words from john's gospel that says behold um the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world all about the cross all about the sacrifice and he said he was seized by such an uncontrollable gladness that he wrote some really sort of buoyant and upbeat if classical music could be upbeat music to go with those words and he had to apologize to the empress explaining that the certainty of god's grace had made him so happy that he wrote a joyful melody for the sober words hiding got it he got it as we draw to a close, that the New Testament would say that the temple is fulfilled in Jesus, but it's also fulfilled in the church. The church, God's people, us, now becomes the place where he dwells. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, God dwelt through Jesus with us, but in the people of God, now, all around the world, God dwells. This is how 1 Peter uh, puts it, you are also like living stones and being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God dwells with, with his people today. We are the temple of the living God. And so that means like those three things that I mentioned, that, that we, we sacrifice to God, not, not bulls and, and lambs or rams, but we sacrifice our lives to God with joyful worship. As Peter said, we declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into a glorious light. And we celebrate something greater than the Passover. We celebrate the cross, where we experience forgiveness and redemption and restored joy. But we're also, as a church, we're not a closed club. We want to have great openness, welcoming in others who have accepted Jesus in repentance and faith. And so, as I said at the beginning, that worship started in, in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. Now it finds its nerve center in this group of, yes, beautiful people, but also pretty random bunch of people, like, even like us at, at Trinity. But it'd be wrong not to say where it culminates. Garden, nerve center of the church, but it finds its culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation, right at the very end of the Bible, says this, it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is the future. That's the new heavens and the new earth. It's where we're heading. And it's what the church points towards. That is where the, the completion of God's building project will take place, with joyful worship around the throne where Jesus sits. And so let's be a church that sort of is a signpost, a foretaste of that dwelling with God forever. Wouldn't that be a good thing?
let me lead us in a prayer as I finish. Father, this uh, story back in the book of Ezra, it does uh, feel slightly alien to our ears. It feels like a, a long time ago, but thank you so much for the way that it points us towards the church today, the, the temple now where you dwell with us. And we feel pretty ordinary uh, a lot of the time, but we know that you are with us. Lord, help us to have great confidence of that foundation of the word of God. Help us to have confidence that you provide for the church today. And that it might be a place where we would worship you joyfully. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.